Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week's guest is someone I've been wanting to have on for a long time. It's the excellent singer-songwriter Glenn Burtnick. He has done just about everything there is to do in the music industry and still continues to do it. He started out, well, his story goes way, way back actually, and we get into it somewhat on here, but uh, his big break, we'll say, was when he released two albums in the mid-80s on A&M Records. The first one was called Talking in Code, which I like a lot. I, I like them both, but I really love that album. And then in 1987, he released a second album called Heroes and Zeros, which featured the song you're listening to right here, Follow You, which was a moderate hit. I think it reached number 65 on the charts. So not huge, but it got some airplay. You may remember it. Regular listeners of the podcast will probably remember that I've brought this up before. Glenn, to me, falls under that category of Stallone music. So Stallone music, as you can imagine, are bands or songs that would have been played over montages in 80s era Stallone movies, like Rocky IV or Over the Top or Cobra, that kind of stuff. We're talking Survivor, we're talking Robert Tepper, we're talking Kenny Loggins, we're talking John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band, those kind of that kind of stuff. I love that kind of music. That's where kind of Glenn falls for me. So in the late 80s, after that second album came out, Glenn was hired to replace Tommy Shaw in Styx. And in fact, he wrote what was probably their last decent-sized hit, Love is the Ritual, which came out in 1991. And from there, he just basically became sort of a gun-for-hire songwriting-wise. He wrote a huge hit for Patti Smythe and Don Henley. He wrote a huge hit for Randy Travis, of all people. And uh, he continued to put out music occasionally every couple of years. We talk about one of those albums in particular. You know, that's mostly what he's been doing, and including now. I mean, these days he's got, I'm not kidding, half a dozen projects going on at any one time. And all of them are pretty bigger, you know, they're bigger, high-profile projects. They're not just little things. So the guy really embodies the spirit of The Hustle. I'm really glad he talked to me. He didn't have a ton of time, unfortunately, and he was driving when he did, but I'm really glad he talked to me. He called me from his car in Asbury Park, New Jersey. I've liked you for a long time, and uh, you were one of the first people that I thought of for this because you hustle like nobody's business, at least what I can tell from Facebook. And so I thought, I wonder if Glenn would talk to me. I didn't know if you'd ever even have the time. I didn't know if I should even ask. I was afraid to be like, do you not see my schedule? Do you not know how busy I am? So I, it took me a while to work up the guts to even ask. But anyway, thanks for doing this. You're welcome, and uh, congratulations on your bravery. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, uh, this is a big score. I, uh, I've been wanting to talk to you for a while. So I'll just kick it off. Like I said, you seem to embody this kind of idea of the hustle because – there's so many, I, I don't think you do it as much anymore, but it used to seem like on Facebook, you would post like, I'm traveling here, and then I'm traveling there, and then I have a show, and then the next morning I'm going here, and then the next day I'm going there, and it just seems like you're constantly like circling the globe to play someone, somewhere with some band. I mean, is your schedule really is that crazy? Has it slowed down at all? Where do you find the energy to do all this? My schedule is really crazy in that it can go from me hopping around from continent to continent within weeks to not having any gigs for like a month. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for the most part, I do play every month. I have a, a number of gigs. But, yeah. But yes, it is completely uh, unpredictable. You know, I was thinking about it today that 
I am best when I have an assignment. When uh, I, you know, I say yes to almost everything. And, and when yeah. somebody says, okay, you have to be here at a certain time, then either I'm booking a flight or they're booking a flight for me. And then I have it on my calendar, and then I have something to do that day. Um, yeah. It's not, I don't know, it's not necessarily that I'm so motivated uh-huh. as much as I uh, lay the groundwork for all these assignments that I have to fill. It's as if you're going to school and you have classes that you have to, sure. you know, you just have to be, be at. You don't choose yeah. when you go to classes. you got to be there, and that's kind of, yeah. That's kind of how I keep working. And I don't think I have any more energy than anybody. I personally consider myself lazy, believe it or not. But <laughs> but when I sit back and I do look at, like, you know, what I've done, you know, I guess I'm working hard. And I'm, I am a worker, you know. And yeah, I, that, I can tell. Yeah, I mean, something that comes from my, my family or something. Yeah, how much of this, I mean, you know, so we talk a lot about on here about money very sensitively. I'm guessing, yeah. and this is obviously how you have to pay your bills. Do you ever feel like you're working, is it worth it to you to work as much as you do to maintain whatever level of lifestyle you have? Or is there some desperation there? I mean, you can, I hope that's not too insensitive, yeah. but if, if it's yeah, like, no, no, no. i got to keep doing this, Keep doing this, or else my bills don't get paid. Um, a little in between those extremes. Yeah, I, there's no desperation in it, but it does. It it, it does, because it varies. That, that makes me say yes to everything. Okay. You know, um, I can, and and because of the way taxes are, <laughs> because. Sure. I could I could have a very successful year, so then I'll pay taxes for that year, and then the following year I have to pay estimated taxes based mm-hmm. on the good year I just had. Yeah. And yeah. and that could be nowhere near as good a year. Yeah. And and I'm yeah. chasing my tail trying to pay the estimated taxes based on a year that. I'm not having, you know, so wow. that, there's a bit of that. But, you know, it's incentive because, yeah. you know, left on my own, I would probably like to just lay around, watch YouTube videos of uh, <laughs> old music, right? And, you know, and I don't know, get stoned or hang out at bars, you know, I mean, sure. it's left on my own. So, uh, as, you know, and I look at that and I say, well, that's probably the way I will end up someday. But One uh, day. right now, right yeah. now I, I enjoy it, you know, and, and I will say that, you know, instead of just having one gig, I have multiple gigs. And yeah. it kind of it suits my attention deficit, my social attention deficit syndrome, because I never get really sick of any one project because, uh, you know, if yeah. I just wait a day a day or three, I'm going to be yeah. completely engulfed in another one. You know? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Well, I want to talk about your early career for a little bit. We'll come back to some of this stuff. But I uh, So I always kick it off with how I discovered the person I'm talking to, and I think in your case it was good old VH1 Classic. And it's funny that we're – I don't know if you know this, but VH1 Classic has changed formats now, so they don't just play videos like they used to. But back in the day, probably 10, 12 years ago, I remember them playing a, a Glenn Burtnick video for Follow You, I Will Follow You. I thought, that's a name. I think I recognize that name. I don't know if I recognize I feel like I should, and I love that song, and your music is so hard to find, especially on CD, at least your old stuff. Yeah. So yeah. I had to download it. No offense, I'm sorry. But Talking in Code is just one of my favorite albums ever. I've been trying to think of something to say But the words don't come You send that neon light my way And I can't feel a thing
I just love it. It makes me so happy every time I listen to it. Yeah. So I'm wondering, though, I mean, you were probably coming up through the ranks as kind of a hot commodity, you know? Like, we got this guy, he's young, he's good-looking, he's got long, big hair, he writes great songs. You know, he's going to do, he's going to be amazing. And then Talking in Code comes out. I don't know if there's even any singles off that thing or if there were any videos. And then Heroes and Zeros, you got some traction off that. What were those early, heady days like for you? Well, there was a lot that went on before then, actually. But as far as those days, yeah, they were, and there were, you know, there were people investing in me, like A&M Records, which was a wonderful, wonderful place to be at, uh, because it was a record label owned by a musician, Herb Albert, you know. At the time, the headquarters was at Charlie Chaplin's old uh film studio in Hollywood, which is this beautiful lot. I really thought I had made the big time. I knew I was up against a lot, but I really enjoyed the era. I did have uh, the the first album, Talking in Code. I did have a video or two. You did? Did that for Crank It Up? No, Little Red House. Really? Uh, I tried yeah, to find was, these on fa- on YouTube, and I can't find them. I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm not digging uh, hard enough. I, I, think, I think that one is. I think I've seen it. Well, anyway. Okay. I'll keep looking. Um, yeah, but before then, though, I, you know, I thought I was going to be Bob Dylan when I was in high school. And then uh, there was, uh, you know, and then I was playing bars through the disco era. And then, uh, you know, wearing jumpsuits and stuff. And then, and then I... <laughs> Then I got a, a uh, I auditioned for Beatlemania, which yep. was a, a, a you know a show on Broadway depicting yeah. the Beatles and Beatle music. That's where Marshall Crenshaw got his start too, right? Yes. Well, we were in the same band at Beatlemania. Yep. We we've been been friends ever since. And, and I love him. Uh, I love him too. Yeah, he's Good. he's tremendous. He's tremendous. So I portrayed Paul McCartney in that show. I'm left-handed. That helped. And then from there, I I played with a couple of other New Jersey Shore bands, La Bamba and the Hubcats, Cats on a Smooth Surface, you know. And then yep. I got this deal with A&M Records. So I put out two albums as a solo artist on A&M. And after that, you know, and that brought me to a lot of uh, minds. A lot of people noticed me. And then... And which led to uh, a couple of things. Um, Sticks sure. needed a replacement for Tommy Shaw. Yeah. So so I took his place for uh, an album. I took Tommy Shaw's yeah. place. And, Love is the ritual. Also, Great song. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
Yeah, yeah thank you. And, and you know, enough, a number of other songs on that album. Sure, and of then, That I wrote and sang. And then I also, Patty Smythe's manager connected me with Patty, and we wrote together, and yep. we had uh, a, a great run, particularly my biggest pop song as a songwriter uh, called Sometimes Love Just Ain't Enough, which was a song recorded by her and Don Henley. I don't want to use you Just to have somebody by my side And I don't want to hate you I don't want to take you But I don't want to be the one to cry And I don't really matter To anyone anymore I remember it well, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So that was so that's what happened immediately after my solo deal with A and M. I became, uh, you know, a Sticks member for a few years, yeah. and then I uh, became a sought-after songwriter. Yeah. And uh, you know, so I had a couple of a couple of country hits and a couple of different hits, and then yeah, some Randy um, Travis in there too, right? He was 16, tender and tough. She was too, and he'd do anything to prove his love. With so much riding on the choice at hand, the spirit of a boy or the wisdom of a man, hearts caught fire. Love ran wild She cried the day she called to say She was having his child With so much riding on the choice at hand The spirit of a boy Or the wisdom of a man There's a constant contradiction What feels good and what feels right you live with decisions that you make in your life And what steers your direction is hard to understand The spirit of a boy or the wisdom of a man Randy Travis had a number one country song. Yeah, yeah. Which, so I was... And I was thrilled about that because it was like having, you know, being a guy from New Jersey writing a, a song that's, uh, you know, embraced by the country community. I felt, sure. that, you know, that, that was a nice accomplishment. You must have never because thought like, you know, that you'd be setting out to write country songs, and yet it yeah, happened. I've always felt that, like, writing a rock and roll song doesn't require some of the craft that country music requires. Oh, interesting. Uh, so, so I felt proud of, of, of that feather in my cap. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah. you know, so then Tommy Shaw came back to Sticks, but I was sought after as a songwriter for about 10 years. And then Chuck Pinozzo, who was the bass player from Sticks, he fell ill, and I was hired as the bass player. I returned yeah. to Sticks as bass player. So the um, Cyclorama, is that how you say that? Yeah, Cyclorama, yeah. Cyclorama album, yeah. Looking up from where I stand I see the baby trip Of a jet plane in the sky Hear the 
Can I ask you a question about six? Because I, um, I get the impression from an outsider that it's a very divisive camp. You're either, there's Dennis on one side and there's JY and Tommy on the other side. And the two don't mix together very well. And you were, yet you were a part of both camps. And I even saw you, this was going back a while. I'm, there was a show on A&E, I think it was called Private Sessions or something like that. Lynn Hoffman hosted, just the hottest DJ in history. And uh, you were, I remember Dennis was on there, and you were playing in the background. And I thought, oh, there's good old Glenn. I wondered where Glenn was. This is great, you know. And so I feel like, though, that maybe you kind of, can you travel easily between both camps? Is it not as hostile as I think it is? Do you have to pick a side? How does that work politically? You know, those guys... But essentially, it was a divorce. Yeah. You know, be, between the two camps of sticks, and it, as in every divorce, there are two sides to every story, and, and sure. each camp has a very good argument. You know, and yeah. I saw no reason to. You know, I you know for a while I was very gung ho about one side, but then I kind of grew up a little bit and said, you know, this is not my battle. This is this yeah. This is between, you know, these two different camps, and I wish them both luck, but there's no reason for me to get involved, you know. So, um, mm-hmm. I, so I'm so i pretty comfortable bouncing back and forth between the two. Um, okay. I they don't probably, make you pick a side. Yeah I, I, yeah, I mean, I don't think I made any enemies by doing it, but I, I also think that each side felt a little betrayed because... Mm. You know, he, I thought he was my friend, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, and, and, right. But, you know, I'm everybody's friend and nobody's friend. I'm, I'm sure. you know, I'm, I'm a working musician. And, you know, every once in a while, this goes with the overall, you know, concept of this conversation. Every once in a while, somebody, some fan or somebody will refer to me as a rock star. And I always correct them. No, no, mm. no, no. Like Rod Stewart's a rock star. You right. know, Billy Idol, you know, whoever, yeah. Michael Jackson, Paul McCartney. These are rock stars. I am a rock musician. Mm. You know, if I were if I were a star, I would have a lot more options and I would just do whatever I wanted. Sure. But uh, right now, I'm a working man. You know, I'm a yeah. working musician. And I don't, I, not only do I think there's nothing wrong with that, but I think that I get a better view of life and I have more of a reality check than yeah. someone who is surrounded by yes people all their yeah. lives. Yeah. Did you come by that wisdom later in life? Because I'm guessing when you were at the height of being promoted by A&M as this hot new thing and you're putting out your own albums and they're great, but maybe they're not you know, taking off or you're not seeing... I don't know. Do you, when you look back at those early days, do you feel like something wasn't connecting? Do you feel like is there political battles inside A and M where they're not promoting you like they should? Are you disappointed in what happened? How do you look back at that early, those early times? I, I you know, I was, I'm sure I was, you know, I took it personal and I was hurt and I felt betrayed and all this emotional mumbo jumbo, you know. But yeah. When I when I really honestly look back now as a fully grown adult, I'm like, well, you know what? A and M did their best, uh, and it, 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 it's you know if your product isn't a hit with popular culture, you know, so be it. Uh, every day yeah. there are 
artists, new artists that come on this first on the scene who mm-hmm. might be, you know, even very more important in a hundred years than the, sure. than the biggest, you know, than Taylor Swift is, but they they go unheard, you know, for yeah. all we know. Yeah. The, 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 the reigning genius of our time musically could be somebody that's completely being ignored. Right. As were right. many, you know, painters and, and composers in the past. Yeah. You know, we don't know. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, yeah. there's um, you know, there are hit records and that doesn't mean popularity does not equal greatness all the time. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, so, so I, you have to accept if, if you put out records, you got a chance to be were on MTV, all of this stuff. And, and it didn't go multi-platinum. Yeah. It's okay, you know, because that's, okay. that's just the way life is. And, and uh, yeah, now maybe this is a rationale as a way to get through the disappointment of not being right. the world's next Bob Dylan or whatever the heck it was I thought I was going to be. But, right. I, you know, it's uh, what incredible, what an incredible life I've led. Totally. And it continues. And it continues to be uh, incredible. And I'm, you know, I'm nothing but lucky. I'm extremely yeah. lucky. And I'm even lucky that my wildest dreams did not come true, because I might be miserable. Most of the people yeah. that I know who are successful in music, they're miserable. Really? A lot of them are miserable. Yeah, I would say wow. a lot of them are because it's never enough. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and you always want to top yourself or you always want to go back to being as big as you were or whatever. And, uh-huh. you know, that's, that's a bunch of bullshit, you know. I, yeah. that, that's a lousy way to look at life. So, you know, that's my speech. Huh. Fascinating. So you got to tell me some stories from the old – I mean, you can tell <laughs> me your best stories from whenever, but I'm just – I'm imagining this – I mean, yes, you've been playing on the Jersey Shore, and you've got some, you've got some years of experience behind you. But you're being launched into the, you know, stratosphere of, of national recognition, for however big or small that was. I imagine you're meeting some heroes. I imagine you're opening for people you can't believe. I imagine there's groupies. What are some of like the most amazing uh, memories you have over your career? Well, you know, before you're a multi-platinum artist, you're an opener, and yeah. you, and so there's a, a superstar act that you're going on before, and rarely does the audience, at least in my case, rarely did the audience know your music, know my music, mm. or recognize who I was, or anything, so there, if it was like going out and, and banging out as, as hard as you could, yeah. uh, trying to win over audiences all the time. Uh, now, I always had a following uh, back home. Okay. Uh, but, um, you know, but opening for artists, I mean, such incredible experiences, you know, and I don't know that I can remember all, all the best stories. I can tell you two come to mind. One oh, good. was op- opening for Joe Walsh, who I met on a number of occasions, and he blew me away as a really outgoing guy, a, a really friendly guy to opening acts, Good. and uh, just a, a really decent cat for an incredibly gifted, talented guy. But yep. after we opened for him in Kansas City in like 87 or 86, he, uh, he went out, he was playing, and it started to rain. And the, it was like an outdoor venue, and, and so the rain was like, like a horizontal rain. And there's mm-hmm. Joe Walsh playing this incredible guitar work. He was soloing. You know, it's probably Rocky Mountain Way or something. The sure. lighting on stage is lighting the raindrops as it's coming down on him. Oh. And he's standing there, and it was like Joe Walsh against the universe. And, <laughs> uh, and he was just playing incredibly, and visually, it was just a, one of the most stunning visuals I'd ever seen in my life. Wow. Uh, so a moment like that. And then there's yeah. Then there's January 4th, 1991. Funny, Joe Walsh is in this story, too. Uh, oh, interesting. Where, where St- I'm in Sticks. We were playing Houston, Texas, 
big event there with a bunch of other acts. Likewise, there is another event going on in Dallas, Texas, same day, July 4th, and a bunch of other acts there. And they flew the acts back and forth. It was a shared event. So oh. after Sticks was after Sticks was done, I we were whisked off to a runway. We get on a Learjet and was flown to Dallas, Texas. Jumped uh-huh. off the Learjet. There's Joe Walsh getting on the Learjet to go play Houston, where I just came from. And uh, yeah. once again, he was very, very sociable cool guy, and he's like, hey, everything's cool here, go have fun, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. And then we then we get on stage, and we're going to go on after Cheap Trick. Now, there's no back of the stage to the Cotton Bowl. It's extremely hot in Dallas, Texas. There right. are, I was told there are 60,000 people, which I don't know if that's possible. But anyway, wow. you're sitting in yeah. the place is packed. The, it's so hot in the audience that they pull out the fire hoses, and they're watering down the audience. Um, and we're standing behind Ch- Cheap Trick. I'm watching Cheap Trick play to 60,000 people, and Robin yeah. Sander is yelling out, show us your tits. Uh, yes. <laughs> and and in between every song that Cheap Trick does, as great as they were, Robin Sander is egging on the audience, and one by one, the tops start coming off. And... <laughs> By the time Styx walked on stage, it was like a Fellini movie. It was like a sea full of breasts. Oh, and, yes. And so it was like I walk on stage and I'm like, holy crap, look at that, you know. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, and likewise, oh. and, and an offsh- offshoot to that story is, interestingly enough, the one girl that caught my attention in the audience that my eyes were attracted to was uh-huh. the one girl wearing a top. So go Of course. It. Of course. She looked different and mysterious. You know? Yeah. In a sea of boobs, the one who's clothed yeah. is the interesting one, right? Yeah, of course. That, that says something <laughs> about human nature, I think. Sure does. Oh, that's great. Speaking of, well, this is horrible. Speaking of boobs, didn't you get married on stage recently? I'm sorry for that segue, but it just occurred to me. You got married on stage like in the last year or two, right? <laughs> yes, I did. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I live in Asbury Park. Uh, I okay. fell in love with my wife uh, in Asbury Park. I um, I was getting some kind of Lifetime Achievement Award at the Asbury Park Music Awards, and I proposed to her on stage at the Stone Pony in Asbury nice. Park. So it just seemed like, where should we get married? Yeah. Let's get married here in Asbury Park. So I threw a concert. It was called the Love Concert in which my wife walked down the aisle at one point in the show and we turned it into a wedding. Nice. And then we got back to music and, and my family was there and my wife sang with me and my friends from a million years uh, got up to sing with me. It was, you know, it was, it was a, great. A, a rock and roll wedding, which... I was not the first to do it. Sly Stone did it in Madison Square Garden. Yep. Uh, Hank Williams got married on stage. I mean, it's like, but it seemed to both me and my wife as a good enough idea. Instead of renting a whole hall and doing your regular kind of wedding, we said, well, let's do it. That's cool. That's very cool. And I saw pictures recently. You were posting of a baby. Is that your baby? Or do you have grandkids no. or something? Yeah, it's my first grandchild. Uh, my wow. my daughter had a had a daughter recently. That's got to be crazy. Yes, it is. Yeah, <laughs> great. I believe it. Good, good for you, man. So, when you look back on your career, I mean, do you have any? Are there any regrets or anything like that? I mean, do you wish something had bounced a little differently, or or you know, you were saying how your current situation sort of plays to your strengths. I mean, it all worked out, but do you have a regret in the end? That's a good question. I mean, business-wise, I'm an idiot. So, I, I mean, if I had it all to do again, I wouldn't sign most of the contracts I signed. Uh, and, I, yeah, I would do things completely differently, and I would, I would have uh, 
found a way to walk away with more money. But uh, yeah. uh, but but having said that, I mean, then I wouldn't have, I might not have had the experiences I had, you know. So yeah. Uh, you know, and I and I and I'm not. It's such a common thing. Most so many musicians are so much better at art than they are at business. Of course. And and uh and you know, back in the old days especially when I was you know, a young man making records with big labels and all of that stuff, I mean it was they had you, you know, that it was yeah. their ball and if and if you didn't want to play, uh, you know, good luck. And yeah. you know, and, and perhaps I wasn't as well, perhaps I wasn't as powerful or as strong or, or even as talented uh, as it would have been to like you know when I when I think about Prince or I th- you know there's mm-hmm. some artists that I think they would have been successful no matter what because they're just so right. good. But yeah. But um and maybe I'm more of a working musician again. You know, I'm very proud of everything I've written. I'm very yeah. proud of the records I've made and stuff. But uh, you know, I, I do question maybe there's a reason why. I didn't have a slew of hits as a solo artist. Yeah. Do you? What's the deal? Why are your albums not? Are they on CD? I don't think so. At least not the first few. Yeah. Like the first I don't one. Even is, know. Well, now, um, uh, Talking in Code came out just as CDs were beginning to hit the market. It was a very okay. rare thing. Yeah. And only a select few got released as CDs. Uh, so my first record was only released on CD in Japan at the time. Oh, wow. My okay. second album, Heroes and Zeros, was released on CD in the United States as well as all over the world. But then they went out of print. And yep. uh, a- A&M Records eventually got bought by Polygram Records Yep. who eventually got bought by Universal Music. And I would think my music is buried so low in the pile that Probably. it may never be released. Now, oddly enough, and I don't know how they pulled this off, but there was a small German label that released Talking in Code on CD maybe five years ago or so because... Because at the time, people were spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars on eBay for yeah. Japanese digital copies, you know, CDs of Talking in Code. Right. And Heroes and Zeros. I've seen Heroes and Zeros on vinyl for $250 in a store. And I've seen uh, a $400 copy on eBay of Talking in Code Diva CD. So wow. at the time... There was this rush for my music. And then, so, I don't know, somebody made some kind of deal uh, with Polygram or somebody about, so so they got their hands on a small batch of, uh, they made uh, they, they made copies of Talking to Code. So they're out there, but they're still, they're still probably rare and probably expensive. Yeah. Yeah, that's all I can find. It's so frustrating because I love it. I've, I uh, I hate to say it, I had to download that stuff and Retrospectacle. Now Palookaville and Welcome to Hollywood are out there, at least on iTunes. And what's the? I've always wanted to know what's the deal with Welcome to Hollywood because it's about twenty years, almost twenty years after your first album that it comes out, and you sound kind of angry. There's a lot of like swearing, <laughs> and there's a you know there's a lot. It's all and you don't live in Hollywood. So I wondered if maybe you went there as like, you know, we're going to try, you're going to try it out and it was horrible. And this is your way of saying like, piss off LA or whatever. What's the deal with that album? And it's just sonically, it's all over the place. Yeah. <clears throat> I worked really you hard on that. You even rap on that.
Why not try everything? You know? Sure. I don't know. I don't know that I was angry, but but I was more experienced in the cult of personality by that point. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so I mean, I know that uh, the song "Bam" and the song "Welcome to Hollywood." I definitely dealt with, <clears throat> you know, star-making machinery as a topic. Walk right in. I've been close to it. Yeah. And, and not only did I see it kind of uh, applied to me, they were, you know, trying to groom me for success, but also hanging out with other bigger stars who had already had that success. Yeah. And, and maybe I did get a little bit uh, jaded by it all because ultimately I came to the realization that it's, you know, it's empty. I yeah. mean, just because, like, you know, it, it's 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 an empty uh, pursuit to just want to be famous, even right. though that is it's turned it's turned out to be such a popular notion. But you know, I, I kind of got close enough to it to say, you know, there's more to life than yeah ego. You know, right. there's so much more to life than ego. So so maybe that you know that certainly. Um, I was knowledgeable, more knowledgeable and more experienced in that realm okay. by then than I had been when I first started out making records. Yeah. There's that song on there, the last song, The Muse. bananas i mean it, it touches on so many sonically again it's it's so out of left field compared to so many other things on there and it almost feels like you like i said i'm 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 guessing you're angry and i and it sounds like a mission call at this point i'm i i was assuming what you just said that it's been 20 years it's not all it's cracked up to be i'm a little jaded fame is empty but you got to follow your muse at the end of the day, that's all there is to make you happy that you can feel satisfied with is just following that muse. And it almost felt like a mission statement at the end of this strange solo album. Am I sort of right there? 
Nah. <laughs> no, I'm overthinking uh, it. Okay. Well, cool. yeah. I, you know, I, it's interesting, though. You know, your interpretation is your interpretation. I sure. What I was was amused. What I was saying was, I was trying to make an uplifting song, and people have told me that it's very uplifting. But um, it is. Yeah, I love that song. And and yeah. Um, I. Uh, but but it's interesting because you know it comes after. Uh, whatever the songs are before it, and there is some kind of cataclysmic, you know, explosion yeah. uh, on the record where everything comes together, and and and, and that's you know, and there's a battle between good and evil and all this stuff. I mean, it, sure. was, it was a concept album, and uh, you know, it was. In, I really always wanted to make a, a grandiose statement, and uh, you know, and I and I did with that album. You uh, did. And now I'm done with that kind of crap. Yeah. <laughs> Right. That was another thing, too. I'm wondering, I mean, it's 2004, and, you know, yeah. the height of your solo career was almost 20 years earlier. What's the expectation? When you do something like that, are you just satisfying an artistic itch? It doesn't matter who hears this or if it gets – obviously, at this point, you come to terms with fame and what it is and what it isn't. Is it just, I've got something I've got to say and i got to get it out there? Is that what albums and later stages of someone's career, is that usually what they are? Uh, yeah, yeah, and I think that's what they should be. If you're an artist, you sure. know you should, yeah. you know, because to be to be too self-conscious about trying to come up with songs that will get played on the radio or on television or something. I mean, that gets old after a while, and and it's just and it's hollow again. You know, yeah. whereas the greatest, you know, some of the greatest popular songs are, you know, really heartfelt things that sound unlike anything else that was being made at the time, you know, so, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, and I had a blast making that record, and good. And certainly at the time, um, the, uh, you know, I had come to grips with the fact that rap music was the, mm-hmm. the expression that happened in my lifetime, uh, that along with punk and metal, uh, were the big changes in popular music. And, and so I figured I would, you know, try to touch on these elements and try them out myself for size. Sure. Uh, of course, it, you know, at the risk of looking foolish, like what's this guy trying to rap for and all of that, you know. But, but you know, it's like, why not? Why not sure, try sure. it out and see how it, how it feels? And I enjoyed it. And I Good. don't... I mean, I wouldn't be afraid to throw a rap in a song again, but I probably never will. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, no, that's just fascinating. It was just so, you could tell, you were just kind of purging every artistic impulse that you were having in one album. So, okay, so I kept you longer than you said. Thank you so much. Do you want to, what's going on? Now, there's four that I can tell. There's at least four different things that are active in your life. There's uh, the Weaklings, which are sort of a, not a Beatles tribute band, but a Beatles-inspired kind of band. Do I have that right? Original material in the, in the vein of the Beatles? Yes, pretty much, yes. Just Uh, yeah, that's that's the big one where we have a new record coming out in Studio Two. 
which okay. is recorded at Abbey Road Studios. And, um, no way. Yeah, that's the main one. But also I have a, uh, a couple of different productions, a show called The Summer of Love, in, yep. which is like a musical review. It's a celebration of the music of my childhood, uh, the, the late 60s, and, uh, you know, from, from 67 to Woodstock. And then there's another show called The British Invasion, which is a little earlier, more of the early 60s music. Um, yep. And it's a similar situation where it's a review uh, with, you know, both those shows have like uh, 20, uh, over 20 musicians on stage. Um, Amazing. You know, playing this music. And then I, I have a thing called the Beatles Bash, and I do other, and I'm, I also play with a group called The Orchestra, which includes yep. more, former members of Electric Light Orchestra. And then I play, you know, I mean, I keep going. I I, I play uh, at my annual festival called the Fest for Beatles Fans, which uh, with a group called Liverpool, and, and we perform uh, note-for-note replications of Beatles songs. Crazy. Um, yeah, and I'm sure I'm leaving other stuff out. I mean, I, yeah. uh, I, I enjoy all the stuff I do. Oh, yeah, Last Waltz. So I do a... a, a uh, a tribute to the band, you know. So. Oh, interesting. Did you ever just play yeah, as you? I mean, if I wanted to, I live in Denver, but if I flew to Asbury Park and I wanted to see Glenn Burtnick perform Little Red House or Crank It Up, what's the likelihood of that ever happening? I used to do that, but it's been a while. I I okay. just played in Dallas, and, and there was a, a show there that I was hired to uh, play my music. And okay. uh, I did touch on I did touch on my own music, but for the most part, I'm uh, you know I'm I'm a musician for hire. I I, yeah, I want to please the audience. Over. And yeah, it would be it would be such a small audience. Uh, yeah. That I don't you know it's like that at the end of the night it'll be like I'm kind of feeling masturbating up here if there's only twelve people in the audience. You know? True. So, true. Uh, so I'm not really I'm not really doing nothing right now, but you never know. You never know. Okay. I just wonder. I mean, you were saying how you had a following. I don't know if you still do. I imagine you have a following among musicians. Anyone locally who's a music professional musician like you knows. Let's call Glenn Burtnick because he's the perfect guy for this job. Um, but I don't know if you put Glenn Burtnick on a marquee, no matter what the size of the venue is. Are people even in Asbury Park going to come out and listen to Follow You, or are those um, days pretty much in the rearview mirror? No, they would come, and, and and I can do gigs like that and occasionally. I might, but I mean, I I think I'm more. I consider myself anyway a yeah. uh, a respected musician. I have respect from other musicians. Yeah, but I, but you know, it goes back to what I said earlier. I'm not a rock star, you know. I'm yeah. a rock. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, yeah. And, and, and so if I had, if, if I had a big name, perhaps I could, you know, I would be doing that music myself. But, but uh, it's all right, you know. Okay. I, I like writing music. My, my writing music uh, is what I put into uh, the Weaklings with my fellow okay. Weaklings. We all work on uh, original music, which is very inspired by the music I grew up with. Again. Um, mm -hmm. But um, but otherwise, it's like you know, once in a while, I'll I'll put out a single. Wind me up and spin me round, brush me off and hose me down, push me, pull me every which way. Whoa, dress me like a rodeo clown, spread my magic beans around. Wanna paint this white trash town in time? Put it up on a CD, maybe, or something. On iTunes. Yep, those are great. And I'll, yeah. 
Yeah, I'll get it out of my system, and then, and then I'll, you know, I'm, I've got a lot of other stuff to take care of. Okay. Yeah, I'm very busy. Cool. And, okay. Well, it sounds like you're at peace with that, too. And you perform often, I mean, it's all these different gigs that you're juggling, but you perform often enough that you're, busy, you're able to pay your bills doing the orchestra. How, how, many, how often does something like the orchestra perform? Or the Summer of Love perform? A lot, a lot, a lot. Now, the Summer okay. of Love is probably like, uh, you know, 12 to 20 shows a year. The, the orchestra wow. is probably uh, 20 to 40 shows a year. Uh, you know, the Weaklings are probably another 20 to 40 shows a year. Uh, you know, there's a lot. There's a lot. Yeah, okay, so you're set. And we should clarify, this: the orchestra... Is not affiliated with Jeff Lynne. These are former either members or touring musicians who have played with various iterations of ELO over the years, right? Yes, yes. Mick, yeah. Mick Kaminsky was the violinist with ELO, uh, and uh, Luke Clark was the arranger for uh, all of the ELO records. Um, the, the band, the orchestra was started. Uh, by the drummer of ELO, or the, uh, the, the guy on the original ELO records, okay. but, uh, but but then he left the group. There, there were a lot. There were other players that were in uh, ELO, but eventually, kind of. You know, in fact, I'm just the bass, the, the guy, the original bass player from ELO, Kelly Crockett. He suddenly mm-hmm. passed away, and oh. I got the phone call. So oh, wow. uh, it's kind of like that. It's like. You know, it's like a Smile Tap story of somebody died yeah. before Glenn. But, but in any case, uh, yeah, so that's what that band is. It's not the same okay. uh, band as Jeff Lynn's current and wonderful sure. ELO project. Yeah. But it is that music uh, played by a couple of the guys that were in that band, and I'm enjoying playing it along with them. Good, good. That's great. Well, Glenn, thank you for doing this. I think you're so great, and I've always really loved uh, your solo stuff, especially. That's what really got me turned on to you 10, 12 years ago. And I've had this fascinating fascination and curiosity about you ever since. Who is this guy? He's so talented. His music is so great. Where does he go? Where does a guy like Glenn go? And how does he look back on his career? And I, uh, so I'm so grateful that you talked to me about it because I've just been so fascinated with you for a long time. Well, you know, I'm a big music fan myself, and I definitely recognize that. But now, here's a guy. You know, you're calling me up. You want to do this, this stuff. You're obviously a, a, a deep cut kind of music fan, which is what I am. Which is a lot yeah. of what I do for entertainment alone is I'm, I'm on YouTube and on Wikipedia and I'm looking up musicians and I'm yeah. I, I'm trying to find more to the story and especially if there's an artist. You know, like let's say Emmett Rhodes, an artist that really never had the big there you hit, go. But 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 I'm like completely fascinated with him, you know, and stuff like yeah. that. Like artists that bubbled under who sure. uh whose whose music really connect with me but nevertheless didn't really you know, hit yeah. the home run grand slam. Uh, you know, yeah, so I, I recognize it and uh and I know uh so I'm very, very uh, flattered by it, and thanks. Sure, you bet. That was the whole, that's who I, every, I mean, I've done about 80 of these now, and it's all people like that. Those people who had that song that you loved when you were 14, and where did they go, and how are they doing, and how do they pay their bills, and, and do they ever look back at their lives and think, did I do anything, did I even accomplish something? Well, I'm here to tell them that they did, you know, while they're there in their cubicle at their new job or whatever. I want them to know I care about you. And so when you're, if you ever wonder, does anyone care about my early solo material? You got a guy right here in Denver who cares. So I want you That's to That's lovely. That's yeah. lovely. I have a question for you. So you've done 80 of these. Yeah. I, I, I would imagine you have uh, encountered the spectrum of reactions, including some bitter people. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, there have been a couple. Yeah, most people have been really nice. Um, yeah. I uh, and most of the people I've talked to are sort of in a similar boat as you, 
in that they are still professional musicians. It's just not about their own career anymore. And so they do, you know, they do other things. They play, they play with other bands and do other things. Uh, some people have regular jobs, you know. Um, it just really depends. So far, everyone's been really gracious because, like I said, the whole point is to let you know that I love you, you know. And so I think people come in sort of skeptical, like, who is this guy? But then they realize that I'm just a fan trying to pass the word, you know, and honor you. Then yeah. they, they seem to appreciate it for the most part. There you have it, Glenn Burtnick. I really liked him. I know that we didn't have the time to go quite as deep as I normally would, but this was lean and mean. Plus, he gave a lot of insightful, perceptive thoughts about his career, about music careers in general, um, where he stands in the pantheon, that kind of a thing. I really appreciated everything he had to say. And I have to say, I think there's more to this story about that Welcome to Hollywood album. If you've never heard it, it is such a fascinatingly curious piece of work, especially when you compare it to all of his other stuff. There's got to be more to it than that. Anyway, thank you, Glenn, for doing that. And thank you all for listening. If this is your first time, this is what we do. Every Tuesday, we release a new episode. We've done about 80 of these almost so far. And we try to tell the stories that don't get told as often about people who experienced uh, maybe brief rock stardom and hear some of their stories, how they piece it together to maintain a career over the long haul and what the impacts of that emotionally, psychologically, and financially of that moment is for them. And we want to just hear some of their best stories, you know? I mean, like the boob story. That's what we want to know, you know? Anyway, you can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can communicate with me on there. If there's a band or an artist that you haven't heard from in a while that you'd like to hear from, let me know. I'll try and track them down. You can send me an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Easiest thing is to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can... Um, Look back into our archives. There's probably other guests out there that you would like to hear from as well. You can write us a review while you're there, good or bad. I don't care. Good is better, but whatever. Just please uh, communicate with us. Stay involved. Keep in touch. We'd love it. And thank you, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich for producing the podcast. We will see you next Tuesday with another guest. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you then. <laughs>